Hi, and welcome back to this episode of the Peak Results Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rich Fournier, and in today's episode, I sit down with Canadian Olympic bobsledder James McNaughton. Now, James came to the sport of bobsled kind of as a fluke. He was a latecomer, and at the age of 23, he attended a recruitment camp. But he wasted no time in making a name for himself on the international circuits, and later, at the 2014 Winter Olympics, where he placed 14th as a member of the four-man bobsled team. Now, James delves into what it takes to perform at an Olympic level and how he's overcome hurdles in his sport and why dreaming big can pay off large. So stay tuned to this amazing episode. Have you ever wondered why some people thrive in all areas of their life? Welcome to the Peak Results Academy podcast with your host, Rich Fournier. Each week, we interview industry experts who consistently dominate in the fields of health, business, and beyond. Our mission is to share their personal struggles and strategies so that you can create your own peak results. Welcome to the Academy. Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Peak Results Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rich Fournier, and today, super grateful for the opportunity to be sitting down with James McNaughton, um, former Olympian um, for Canada. Um, he was an Olympian um, recently. I mean, he was in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi um, for the bobsledding team, foreman team. I'm excited to have him because, listen, let's be honest, very, very Few people will ever make it to the Olympics. And of course, this podcast is about creating a peak result in someone's life and business. So I'm just so excited to have you, James. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. So from football player to Olympian to now firefighter, dad, husband, business owner, not an old guy. Like you've had a hell of a career already. And of course, you know, we're trying to figure out what creates a peak result. And I'd love to start off a little bit about your journey into becoming an Olympian. How did all that start? Uh, it's kind of a funny story, actually. I, I don't think I would have taken the traditional route to being an Olympian. Um, I'd say it all started in high school. Uh, I played on the rugby team and my rugby coach tried to convince me to come out for football. And I never had any interest in football, never understood the sport. And I ended up quitting. And uh, next year, he bugged me again. And I'd grown quite a bit, uh, went out, and I could use my physical attributes a little bit more and started to pick up the sport. Um, and in my grade 12 year, my coach had actually asked me if I had any interest in playing football in university. And I thought, oh, cool. Like that, I never in a million years imagined myself even going to university, let alone playing varsity sports there. Uh, so I looked into it and I figured I figured out I really had to upgrade my courses. Uh, so buckled down in the books um, and I ended up getting recruited all across Canada and chose University of Ottawa. And that was kind of the, the first stepping stone for me. Uh, I had an amazing time playing with one of the like top 10 teams in Canada. I went to Canadian semifinal there, a bunch of Ontario finals, um, which was awesome, a great competitive atmosphere. And funny enough, in my fourth year, um, my best friend had watched Cool Runnings, and we just were talking about it jokingly on the phone. 
um, about how cool it is that these guys get paid the toboggan. And <laughs> right now, for those people who are listening and don't know, Cool Runnings was the story about the Jamaican bobsled team, correct? Yeah, John Candy was in there. And yeah, great movie. So I'd, I'd never even watched the movie at that point. And uh, we just joked around a whole bunch about how funny it would be if we tried out for the Canadian bobsled team. Uh, and one day that joke turned into a reality. We, we decided what a cool experience it would be to sign up and try out for the team and just see what it's all about, um, like completely as a joke. Uh, but we actually looked it up and they had open tryouts all across Canada. And just so happened the stars aligned perfectly for me. I was trying to uh, make the CFL at that point. And I was kind of in the peak of my training going into my draft year. Uh, and the camp was at the end of the summer, right before my football season started up. So I was in like the absolute best shape I could be in. Uh, and a lot of the testing events ended up being almost identical to what, uh, what you're training for to try to make the CF like professional football team. So I signed up for that testing event with my best friend who played linebacker at McMaster. And uh, we went out there and met the team, did the testing, thought it was a great experience, went home and didn't really think anything of it. We just like laughed like, oh, haha, I can't believe we actually went out <laughs> the Canadian bobsled team. And uh, they called us a week later and said that we think you both have some potential here. Uh, we want to fly out to Calgary and see if you can actually apply what you did on the, uh, on the turf when, in our sprinting and we had to do different lifts and jumps and all that stuff. Um, they wanted to see if we can actually apply it on the ice, pushing a sled. So they flew us out there, taught us how to push and changed my life. <laughs> you think, right? Cause you also met your wife through this process of being an Olympian and we'll get into that, um, um, afterwards. Um, that conversation. So we're actually going to interview her as well because you're both Olympians, which is crazy. Um, so this wasn't something that you desired from a, as a young kid. It wasn't something you were dreaming about. Absolutely not. I um, honestly, Rich, it was. Uh, it's one of the most defining moments of my life. But three months before I was sitting in a sled competing in Europe, I never in a million years pictured myself competing or even having a chance to compete for team Canada in any sport. Um, it was just like a complete whirlwind. I went from zero to a hundred with that sport and never looked back. <laughs> so you're kind of an anomaly. You're an enigma because a lot of people train for years and years and years. Not that you didn't train. I mean, you trained really, really hard to be a varsity athlete, to compete and try to get into the CFL. Um, I mean, that's a heck of a story. Um, what was, what was the training like when you accepted the to the team? Um, it was a difference. Uh, one of the big things that I kind of gave up on trying to make the, take the professional football route is my body was just getting killed. I was injured all the time. I was basically just nursing injuries instead of getting better physically. Yeah. Um, so it was a really, really nice transition. Um, uh, definitely a different style of training. Uh, a lot of the same concepts, but instead of nursing injuries and kind of limping through a season, you were progressively getting stronger and faster and healthier throughout. So a uh, bit of a shock with all the sprint work we had to do because I was used to short sprinting distances and mainly like weight room stuff. Um, and I had to go from a big, strong guy to a big, strong, fast guy now. So my, uh, 
the amount of time I had to put in at a sprint track with sprint coaching was a major shock. Um, it took a lot of work. Now, you know, the Canadian, the financial support for Canadian athletes, isn't that great? Right. I was talking with a, um, an Olympian fencer uh, not long ago, and he's working full-time and training full-time. It's insane the amount of work that guy's doing right now to support his career. Um, did you have any support while you were training? So I was uh, fortunate enough to receive like the top level of carding, which is a, a whopping $18,000 a year. <laughs> right. So I needed quite a bit of support, actually. Um, I got... I got very lucky. I made some like amazing friends when I'd moved out to Calgary to train with the team. Yeah. Um, one of my good buddies, he put me up for a hundred bucks a month in a, uh, not much more than a closet <laughs> for a bedroom, but yeah. uh, it was enough for me to rest my eyes so I could save some pennies there. Um, and then I ended up holding a fundraiser every year before. So our bobsled season would end in March. We'd have our world championships and then you'd get like a few month break and then uh, training would resume like full steam ahead, usually in May. Yeah. So from March until late May, I'd organize a fundraiser golf tournament uh, that really, really helped me get through. Um, you're on your own for pretty much everything until you're on tour. So you have to pay for your room and board, your flights to Calgary, uh, massage, whatever kind of therapy you need all your food supplements so it uh it's not cheap <laughs> if you want to try to to compete at that level and you you can it's really really difficult to to be able to spend the extra downtime from your training working a job so i had to get creative trying to make some money in that uh that little window of time when you look at other programs around the world we'll just use our neighbors to the south the u.s um I'm assuming most Olympic athletes aren't having to fundraise. Uh, to tell you the truth, I, I feel like I was lucky um, because we do have baseline support. Yeah. So like kind of development funding here in the States, you can make really good money, but you have to be in the top. I think it's the top eight in the world to get any funding and then you get good funding. Um, and it's, it's different for every sport. I'm just speaking for bobsled. Um, but the, their top teams were quite well-funded and I honestly, I don't even understand how people can start out in that sport down there otherwise, cause they're, they're completely on their own. They're completely on their own. So we kind of have this like equilibrium where everyone gets a very little amount of money. Um, but it helps you get into the sport. Right. And then beyond that, you're totally on your own to to actually be able to make a living doing it. Um, in the States, the, the barriers to get in are higher. Um, they, they get actually a lot of military guys that are on a, like a military contract. Yep. So they, they can afford it that way. But um, fortunately, like our, our development programming is quite good in Canada. When you went from varsity to try to, to compete to get into the CFL and then, and then, of course, training with Olympians, is there a big difference between the mindset of the different athletes? Um, football and bobsled are very similar and very different. Um, the competition level, I'd say, is the same. Um, it's a whole bunch of 
athletes that are out there that are trying to be at the very top of the game. Um, the interesting dynamic there was like your, your competitors, uh, the environment on a, on a bobsleigh tour is that's second to none. It's the, like the most like friendly, um, welcoming environment. Uh, you're competing directly head to head with these guys and you get down to the bottom of the track and you beat a beat a team off of the podium and they'll come over and give you a big high five and a hug and say like, congrats. And, um, it's a really, really unique dynamic. I, similar to rugby in a sense. Um, not what I would have expected. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, football is a lot more like you hate the team you're playing sort of thing. But. Right. You would think, you know, you big, strong, strapping guys in the peak of their development to high testosterone levels, you think it'd be a bit more aggressive. Yeah, it's, it, it's a funny, like a, a very unique dance between aggression and, <laughs> and uh, friendship, though. Like, it is, like, probably the most testosterone-riddled sport I've ever been a part of. But um, the culture there is just second to none. It's, it was really, really neat to see. It's, it's, in my opinion, one of the most, like, amazing things to compete at that level with athletes of that caliber and be on such like a, on good terms with everybody you're competing against. Insane. How old were you when you went to the Olympics? Uh, I was 26 when I was in Sochi. And how does that fit in regards to the average age for someone on a bobsled team? Um, were, usually, you, were you the oldest? No, 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 no. We had a guy that was 42 years old. Shut um, up. Lasellas Brown, he's he's retired since. Um, I think he's only been retired since the uh, Korea Games, yeah. and he still could probably strap spikes on and push faster than ninety nine percent of the people in the world. Wow, he is an absolute beast. Yeah, so uh, you're still going to compete? Pardon me? Are you still competing? No, I wish. Uh, I wish, and I don't. I I miss it. I love the competition, um, but I also really love having roots and starting a family and I really enjoy my career now. So I, uh, I definitely don't have any regrets being out of the sport, but it is tough watching it on TV and not being able to <laughs> hop into a sled and That's right. go for a run. What was the training like daily? It was grueling. Um, we actually, we calculated it um, going into the Olympics. So between May and October, um, I think it worked out to, we were on average nine hours a day of training. So that's including, um, getting physiotherapy, massage, stretching, warm up, cool down. But, uh, yeah, every day you're at the track sprinting for a few hours and then you got to go fuel up again, uh, cool down, warm back up, and then you hit the weights and then you have to do all your like additional stuff to, uh, for, to nurse little injuries and work on your weaknesses. So wow. Wow. It was a <laughs> it's more than a full-time job, that's for sure. Were there any times where you questioned being there? I had a very interesting experience. Um it's still kind of a, a tender spot with me and in, in my um my experience there. If you feel um, like you want to go down that road, that's totally fine. Uh, honestly, I, I don't mind. Um, one of, one of my teammates, he was my training partner, one of my best friends on the team. Um, 
ended up he he was doping the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I was training with him. We were training partners. I trained with him every single day. And uh, eventually <laughs> I started doubting my ability to, to make it because I was comparing myself to him. Yeah. Um, and I thought this must be the difference between somebody that's going to make it and myself. Uh, and then positive test comes in and it all made a lot more sense that uh, my, my trajectory was you train, 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 get better, 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 and then kind of taper off, have a little dip and you have to recover and then you go back. So you kind of do this wave and you want the wave to trend upwards. Whereas right. somebody with a bit of an extra advantage doesn't have the dips. They're just on a constant upwards uh, trajectory. Uh, so that definitely put a little doubt in my mind. Um, and it, it was, that was probably the most like mentally challenging uh, time in my, my whole experience training. Uh, it's a, the only time I really had some, like some serious question. Were you capable of doing this? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Is it, yeah. I thought maybe like genetically, I don't have what it takes. Um, I'm doing everything I possibly can here within, within the lines and, for some reason, I can't keep up to this guy. <laughs> and he was my direct competition. So, Right, right. So I, I could see how that would play in your psychology. Yeah. Especially when you're committing nine hours a day, away, yeah. from, away from family, training hard, and maybe just not being able to keep up. Yeah, and honestly, it, um, it was a, that was a negative experience, but it also it really, really forced me to uh, – to find every little efficiency I could, um, like being up against something that I felt like I couldn't beat. Uh, it forced me to have to like look at everything under a microscope and figure out how I could milk every last little thousandth of a second out of every step I took. And, um, I, I think in the, in the long run, it did actually have a positive impact on my, uh, my trajectory. How do you pull yourself out of that doldrum, that, that dip mentally, right? Like a lot of us don't. I mean, even in the world that I'm in, um, you know, we have a tendency to compare ourselves with others all the time. Um, and uh, some days it's hard to keep yourself driven going yeah. because you're so distracted and comparing yourself to other people. What allowed you to be able to, think differently about this process because most people don't and this is where they cave so i actually never I, i've kind of had this it's almost a pro and con for me uh because i i really like dive headfirst into things yeah. if I want them, and i'll i'll either drown if i don't uh don't get the result or come up when i've actually succeeded um so you burn the bridge you're yeah, exactly. I'm all in <laughs> and hopefully it works out. So, uh, but that whole experience really forced me because that, that was, that was the most I've had my back up against the wall. It really, really forced me to analyze what, what I have in my toolbox. That's going to help me, help me achieve this goal. Um, and what I decided to do, uh, this is the first time I consciously did this and reflecting on it. I've, I've done this most of my life actually. Um, instead of focusing on that end goal because it was just killing me every single day I'd go into training. I'd think like, Oh God, I got beat in, in a sprint today. Like I'm not going to make it. And every single time I'd measure myself 
I'd see myself not achieving my end goal and it was just taking a toll on me. So I decided um, in the middle of my 2012 season that I was not going to focus on getting to the Olympics. I was going to break down everything I needed to do to make, give myself the best shot and only focus on those tiny little goals. And it completely changed the way, way I felt about myself and it, it changed the success I was having in my training. So instead of being a hundredth slower on a sprint and thinking, Oh, I got, I got beat again today. I'd work on having to improve my shin angle on my first step of my sprint. And that was the only thing I'd focus on just these tiny little micro goals. And I'd have success every single day in that. And it totally changed my, uh, my mental state. And it just gave me like a whole new kind of boost towards achieving my goal. So, you know, I'm thinking about that process. Um, so you were still thinking of making it to the Olympics. Yeah. I, uh, right. So you're still like, you're still there. So you took your attention off what you didn't want. Yeah. Honestly, Rich, I, I tried to forget about the Olympics. I, mm -hmm. I, I sat there, like I, I sat down and looked at everything that I had and I was very critical. I looked at like my, my sprinting is what needs the most work. And I broke it down into these little micro goals and focused on those only. And I got rid of the whole, like I'd have a bad day of training. I'm not going to make the Olympics or okay. just that kind of like negative downward spiral. Um, I just focused on these tiny, tiny little achievable goals that in the end led to that, that end goal. Um, but every day I'd go out with one little tiny thing I wanted to achieve and that's what I'd focus on. And it just built and compounded and eventually I ended up achieving the, the end goal getting to the Olympics. How do you know what, so this is really interesting, right? So sometimes we talk about winning the day or winning the, the afternoon or winning the morning or winning the hour or winning this task, right? Um, how did you know what to focus on? Was that part of the, you in a conversation with your coach about what you need to focus on on a microscopic level? Um, yeah, we did focus on the wrong things. Oh, for sure. For right? sure. You know, like I'll be honest with you, like this conversation is super important for me and for listeners, but from a money-making activity, it's not so important to me. Yep. Right. So for furthering my, my business, it, it doesn't further my business. So it's the wrong money-making activity, but man, I get joy out of it. Right. Real joy. Yeah. Trying to figure out what makes someone perform at a different level. Right. So how did you make that decision? What to focus on? Um, a lot of it. I, I got lucky. Um, I had amazing kind of sprint coaches and strength coaches all throughout, like starting in high school, right through university. We had, we just got super lucky with our coaching staff. We had, um, and we had actually, um, one of our sprint coaches, used to train bobsledders um, when I was in university. Okay. So he was a very like high level sprint coach. And I just, I picked their brains all the time, just out of interest. I loved it. Um, I always wanted to be fast, but I really liked the, like the science of, of training and what, and what makes people strong and what ma makes people fast. So I had a very like critical and rather educated mind already in the, the whole strength and sprint training world. Got it. 
Um, so between what I learned from my coaches and the, the feedback I get from like all of our uh, training breakdowns and what I actually saw as my weaknesses, that's, that's how I built my little, little micro daily goals that I had to work on. Where did this drive and passion come from? Was this a family trait or was just yeah, you different? Just it's the way you're designed. That's, I think it's just something I developed. I, I got into high school like way, way behind the eight ball. I was like five foot two, 110 pounds, like just this tiny little guy. Yeah. Um, and I did, I got picked on a, a decent amount. And one day I decided like I've, I've had enough of getting picked on. I'm going to, try to get big and strong and yeah. make myself less of a, a, a target. target as like terrible as it, as it is to say. Um, is and I just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just picked up, I, I saved some money. I bought a weight set and started training on my own. And I think it just kind of ingrained this work ethic and like as much as I wasn't getting results right away, I, I was so stubborn and I just <laughs> wanted to make it happen. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think just struggling a little bit as a, as a younger guy and making a decision that I don't want to struggle like this anymore really kind of fed into how I approached the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, making those clear cut decisions is something most people don't do, right? Where some people in that situation, you know, would just cower and go a different route, run away from it. Um, you decide to take personal responsibility for yourself. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not scared. Uh, like I never shy away from challenge. I, mm. that's what I'm definitely my best. Uh, if I'm stagnant, I don't have anything to work towards. I just kind of go stir crazy. Um, okay. I'd rather be way too busy and way too challenged than not have anything going on. Let me ask you a question. When you look at some of the people that you were competing against, to make the team, was there, was there something special about the people that made it? Was it just a good day? <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't just a good day, but you know, like what was that special ingredient? If you can, uh, them, maybe make it three, maybe I'll make it easier. What's the top three things that really fed into someone attaining you know, that role, that position. Top of the I, game, right? I'd say the number one, uh, you probably wouldn't hear this one all that much, but grit. Um, right. People were just, they were not scared to get their hands dirty. They were not scared to suffer. Um, they weren't scared to sacrifice massive parts of their lives for this one goal. Um, and that was a common theme. Every single person that made that team and competed in, one, two, three, however many Olympics, they were all the, the uh, quote unquote grittiest people I've ever met. Um, they'd stop at nothing to, to achieve their goals. Great. Um, money. You didn't say money. <laughs> Pardon me? You didn't say money. You didn't say <laughs> coaches. You didn't say equipment. You didn't say supplements. You said grit. Yep. Pretty talented. It's, it's um, a sport like that. Like you're, you walk in every single quadrennial, um, the, the Olympics are every four, or the winter Olympics are every four years. So the summer, they just oppose each other. But um, 
every single quadrennial, there's a whole new class of recruits that come in. Um, every single one of those people that actually makes it to Calgary to do like a, a testing event is top of the top of the crop athlete. They're, they're big, they're strong, they're fast, and they all have amazing physical potential. Um, it's just that, that little extra bit of grittiness that they have that gets them through. Like you, you have to be able to put up with getting beat by people time after time, after time, after time again, and not let that get you down and make you feel like you're never going to achieve your goal. So it's that's yeah. When I say grit, I don't mean no, physically I gritty. It's no, I hear you mental toughness. Like you're, you're able to take a, a mental beating and bounce back every single day and go back out there and put your best, best foot forward. You know, we talk about making a decision and not, and not making a decision based on your present reality, but making a decision based on a future or something that's more important to you than anything. And whatever's currently happening to you, it doesn't matter. You, all you see is that end goal, regardless of the circumstances. And that's, you know, we don't, I don't see that very often. So that's why I love to take athletes and bring them into this conversation because um, you can boil it down to many different things, coaches, et cetera, but grit and mental toughness is, um, is something that people say can't be taught. I don't believe that. You know, we have people in our industry saying it's either you have it or you don't. I don't believe that. I think we all have it. I just, some of us lack self-confidence. Right, we're not willing to do what's necessary, so we really don't want it. Yep. Was like I'm just trying to understand. There's grit, but what made you? What made you want to do it? Like, was it the fact of like what was that thing? Like, sure, we can have grit, but why did you want to do it? Like, was it the fact that it was so hard that made you want to do it? Yeah, it was the challenge. Um, it the, It's an incredible feeling hopping in a sled and going down the track and hitting six Gs. and it's, it, it's amazing. But when you actually really, really start looking at the uh, at what, what I could affect as a brakeman, I pushed the sled. That's all I did. I didn't drive it. Um, I had no impact on that. I got to go, go along for a free ride pretty much after I pushed it. Um, but when I started to get like a good grasp of this sport and what made you fast on the ice and what an impact you could have for your, like your team's end result, uh, it just, I got addicted to it. I like, all I wanted to do was be, be that little bit faster. And it's, it's just like this constant strive for perfection. Um, like all these, because you're running so fast downhill, you're, you're running faster than you could ever sprint on flat ground. Right. Um, you have to perfect everything in your form to get a little bit faster. Or you fall flat on your face, I'm assuming. Yeah, you just leave the sled behind and turn into, a, <laughs> turn into an anchor instead of a, an engine. Um, so I just, I got a, I was just so interested in how I could make myself more efficient, um, how I could put more force into the slide. It was just this, it's such like a, a minuscule, <laughs> unimportant thing, really pushing a sled. But uh, the challenge was unbelievable. And the, being able to compete in that as well is like, cause you're everyone you're competing against is one of the best athletes in the country. And 
yeah. they they're trying to figure out how to get that little bit more efficiency too. It was just constantly eating me up. I always wanted to be better. <laughs> I think it's actually a big thing. You're saying it's not. I think it's huge because I think it represents um, a battle in your own mind, right? The battle is an exterior. It's right here between your two ears every single day, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, was creative visualization a big deal within the sport? Uh, it was. It, like, you can only run down that track so many times, uh, just getting a little more scientific on it. The, the load it puts on your nervous system is immense. Um, so you can, you can get 15, 20 reps in, in a, in a week and you need recovery. Um, otherwise you'll just, you'll start going downhill. So really, and that's not that much. So the only other thing you can do is visualize you, you go over your reps in your head and you watch a video and you try to reprogram your, your motor patterns mentally instead of physically being out there and doing it. In my research, in what we do every single day, that is the most effective way to produce a result. Everything else means nothing until you reprogram this thing right here, yeah. where you create new neural connections in the mind, where it becomes naturally, right? So most pe people are, they're not, People who produce at whatever level they at, most people are unconsciously competent in what they do. But to be consciously competent in what you do, you have to really understand that mind and that you can actually create new neural connections, which allows your body to perform more efficiently or it becomes natural to do what you do, right? Like we take people, like if you were to take me and say, Rich, start running today, right? I'm 46, 20 pounds overweight. I sit on my butt the whole day. It would take quite a while. <laughs> you might surprise yourself, Rich. <laughs> right? Right? Where, but I know, based on my past programming, that I can change that quite quickly. Yep. Because I already have the, new, the neural connections in my mind because I used to train a lot previously. So the bounce back would be a lot easier. How do you take that and give it to someone? Like, is that possible or does that drive have to be innate? Uh, are you talking the knowledge or the, Just the, uh, the drive to do it? Right? Is it because is it did it come from when you first felt challenged and as a youngster, or did you develop the drive to compete at that level once you knew that it was possible for you once you went for that trial? Uh, I think the the biggest thing that impacted me because I didn't have a lot of self-confidence as a kid. Um, like I was saying, I went out for uh, our football team in grade 11 and I was just like, I had no self-confidence um, and I quit. I, I didn't really get the sport. I didn't give it a shot. And I was honestly, I was just kind of like scared to embarrass myself out there. That's, um, a, that's a really honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, 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 that was like awesome because the truth is, we don't perform because we're so worried. Yeah. People think about what we do or don't do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was, I was petrified to, to screw up and get laughed at. And, yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I quit, but I had my rugby coach, my high school gym teacher. I don't know why. He just always was in my corner. 
Um, he was always trying to like encourage me to like get out and try and try and try. Um, and him just being in my corner and giving me that little extra push and giving me a bit of confidence got me to come back out again. And once I did finally get like a little taste for like, okay, this is something I could maybe do. It just snowballed for me. Um, I think it was the first time I, I really had any like success in a, in a team environment. Um, and once I, I got that feeling of like being, being a part of a team and if I work hard at something, I can actually achieve it. Um, it totally changed things for me. And yeah, I just, I'd never look back from there. It's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself an overly confident person, but I, I am not scared to take on a challenge anymore and I'm not scared to screw up. So that's, it's something you definitely can learn. If you were to give someone a bit of advice today, if they wanted to enter into the sport today or any, in any area of the Olympics, what advice would you give them? Uh, I'd say, don't think you're the best. Um, sit down at a table and be brutally critical of yourself because in, in any Olympic sport, any professional sport, um, the people that make it are the people that fix their problems. Um, you can't just rely on, Oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm fast or I'm strong or whatever. You have to go out there and figure out what your little weaknesses are. You have to admit that you have weaknesses, first of all, um, and you have to figure out what they are and you have to swallow, swallow your pride and go out there and actually work on them. Best piece of advice I've heard all week. Cause I can <laughs> start of the week though, Rich. <laughs> is it, so what day is it? It's Tuesday. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's true. Like, you know, even in our business, right? If I'm brutally honest with myself and what I could absolutely achieve, or my limitations of what I have, if I'm brutally honest, I know there's a, a huge list of things that I can be better at. Yep. And I know in that space, there's someone way better than me that I just got to go ask them how to do it. But I got to get my ego out of the way. Great. Yeah. Right. And that's a, that's a really tough thing to do. Like it's, especially when you are in like, reaching like achieving some success um i saw a lot of people stumble and stumble and fall right or fail right there because they they couldn't swallow their pride and take a step back and be critical of their self of themselves they just always expected that they'd beat their competition or whatever and it's that uh at, at least for me it was taking the step back and like looking at my weaknesses and figuring out how I can make them my strengths. Got it. Got it. I think it's great advice. I appreciate that very much. Um, to be able to have this opportunity to have a conversation with you is, is pretty extraordinary for me um, because you've attained a level of production in a sport that, you know, I'll never do. And I think it's really interesting to get that feedback about what you've accomplished, you know, and I'm really excited to be communicating with your wife soon. Um, she was an Olympian. I mean, it's a great story. I'm assuming. How did you guys meet? <laughs> so after, um, after Get what my, you say, because I'm going to ask her the same questions later. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> um, after the 20, so I injured myself going into the 2013 season at our 2012 world championships. Uh, just in one of my last 
your training peaks right before the world championship. So you're kind of at your, your fastest and your strongest. Um, so a couple of weeks out, you usually have your, like your heaviest lifts and fastest sprints and all that stuff. And I ended up slipping on a lifting platform, doing my like heaviest power clean of the year. Um, and I caught it weird and I just felt something crunch in my low back. Uh, and I thought like, Oh no, like I'm done. It just, it felt terrible. And I woke up the next morning and I was fine. And I found that kind of odd. Um, cause I, I, I thought I was going to be totally immobilized. And then it just kind of fell apart over the next year and a half. So I ended up, I bulged a disc in my low back and fortunately it wasn't rubbing on one of my nerves and causing me like brutal pain at first. But the, the volume and demands you put on your body, um, training at that level for another year and a half, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, unfortunately, I ended up being able to make it through past, uh, past Sochi. Uh, and at our next, next testing camp for the 2015 season, I ended up herniating the disc, so it basically blew apart. Um, and I was, I was physically unable to perform anymore, like a falling on the ground and stuff. Uh, it was terrible. <laughs> I thought we were ending the interview, but now we can end, end the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a curveball, eh? <laughs> oh, jeez. So, yeah, I, um, I tried to rehab it for a little bit, um, and I had a couple of options to just basically block the pain and go out there, but I, I would have caused a, a ton of lifelong damage afterwards. Um, so I decided to shut it down, uh, and I rehabbed it for the next six months. And then ended up taking a job as a forest firefighter the following summer. Yeah, not physical at all. <laughs> I thought it was feeling pretty good. <laughs> um, I blow out a disc, but then I'm going to take on one of the toughest jobs in the world. Right. I went about it. Makes me feel like an underachiever, man. <laughs> I went about it in a funny way. I Instead of getting the surgery for a herniated disc, I, I did a whole bunch of like core rehab and like a natural way to, to rehab it. So I didn't actually have to remove the piece of disc. Um, so I, I built myself up like a, a tree trunk. I, my core was like rock solid and it, I could, I could get by like straining myself without injury, like without re uh, aggravating the nerve. Yeah. So yeah, I went out and tried out the forest fire fighting thing. Uh, it was an amazing experience. Flew around in a helicopter and stuff. And that was the summer after the Olympics. Um, and they had this post Olympic tour going on in the summertime to celebrate all the, the winter Olympian success, um, in the past Olympics. So I flew back to that and caught up with Sarah Reed again, who is now Sarah McNaughton. But, uh, <laughs> we, we traveled together. The not boss. Reed. I'm surprised not James Reed. <laughs> I know she tried for it. <laughs> um, we traveled together the whole time I was competing in bobsled skeleton and bobsled have the same tour and we were always friends and I'd always fight to sit beside Sarah on the plane because she was so tiny and sitting beside a 230 pound bobsledder on a plane is not very comfortable. So, um, yeah, that's the reason <laughs> we, we were good friends on tour. And then at this post Olympic tour, when, uh, like we weren't worried about training. Uh, Sarah was also injured. She had like chronic neck problems from competing for 11 years. 
we just hit it off and stayed in touch for the rest of the year. And then I came back to Calgary to try to rehab my back and didn't go so well. <laughs> Sarah ended up uh, retiring that year as well because her neck was just terrible. Um, and yeah, we, we hit it off then, which is hilarious. We were teammates and friends for four years and <laughs> it took an injury to get us to, to start dating. But yeah, it was, it was an amazing, uh, end to that whole saga too. Like my bobsled career is behind me and Sarah's skeleton career is behind her, but we shared all the same experiences and now we share a life together too. It's amazing. It's amazing. I appreciate you. You, um, you've had an amazing, amazing journey through this process. And now you are, you have your, another career. You're full-time firefighter yep. in Ontario and um, you have your own business as well, which is amazing. And uh, I see nothing but the best life for you going forward. It's amazing. Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate it so far. <laughs> it sure has. I appreciate you spending time with us. Um, I think people are going to get a lot of value from your, your experiences and some of the things that you've shared with us. Because um, you can't fake what you said. It's what you lived. So I do appreciate. So thank you very, very much for spending some time um, with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rich. And I really do hope that it can help somebody achieve one of their goals. I think you have. I think you've made... Um, you tweaked a little thing in my head, which is great. So I'll share that with you some other time. So Perfect. thanks again. I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you are fit to work with Peak Results Academy, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to peakresultsacademy.com slash call. That's peakresultsacademy.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what do you really want out of life and your business? Number two, what is not working for you today? And number three, the exact strategy you should be using to create massive change in these areas. Remember, changing your life and creating massive results does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We're helping clients all over the world create peak results in their health, in their businesses, and in their personal lives. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to peakresultsacademy.com call. We'll chat soon.